So this is the oh. diabetes straw. So there's, it's just a whole lot of pink balls almost. Does that mean blue <laughs> so this is the little little syringe that fits into the pump so we draw this is Fiona that. her daughter Harriet has type 1 diabetes okay I'm Harriet Wilkinson I'm 11 years old and I have type 1 diabetes and if you want to say you're Fiona and you're Harriet's mum and I'm Fiona I'm Harriet's mum So, Harriet, how old were you when you found out you had diabetes? I was six years old and just about to turn seven. There's an organ in your body called the pancreas that creates a hormone called insulin. That insulin breaks down the food you eat and turns it into energy. If your pancreas stops making insulin, it can't properly break down food into energy. Symptoms of diabetes include being really thirsty and really tired. And what what happened that made you find out you had diabetes? Well, I'd been drinking lots of water and then one night I was um, really sick and we went to the doctors and I got checked, I checked my blood sugar and it was too high and then um, we went to hospital for a night and then that was, we went home and that's what's happened ever since, like I've had it ever since, like not like it's ever going to go away but... Nobody knows what causes type 1 diabetes, but there is no cure and it's not preventable. It's different to type 2 diabetes, which is caused by lifestyle factors such as being overweight or having high blood pressure. Type 2 diabetes can be managed with healthy eating and exercise, but it's the same idea. The pancreas struggles to make insulin. Of people with diabetes, about 15% have type 1 and 85% have type 2. She thinks she's low, I don't see that. (laughs) So I've just got a little. So Fiona is testing Harriet's blood, something they have to do a couple of times a day. They use a needle to prick a spot of blood on Harriet's finger, and use what's called a glucometer to test her blood sugar levels. Does it hurt anymore? No, not really. And she's four point four. What are you meant to be? Six. People with diabetes don't have insulin to help them break down energy. To get a little bit more technical, your digestive system breaks down carbohydrates into glucose. Glucose is more easily recognised by your cells as a form of energy, and insulin helps transport this glucose energy to each cell via your bloodstream. When it reaches the cell, glucose is burned to produce energy. Without insulin, the glucose just kind of floats around in your blood. If you're a diabetic, there are two things that can happen. You can have too much blood sugar in your blood or not enough blood sugar. Too much blood sugar is called a hyperglycemic attack and usually occurs if you eat food and then don't follow it up with insulin. But the real worry is a hypoglycemic attack or hypo. This is when blood sugar drops too low. Harriet, could you explain to me what a hypo is? A hypo is when my blood sugar goes below what's meant to be and um, there's not enough in my not, not enough blood glucose in my blood and so I go I start feeling dizzy and then I um, eventually if we leave it too long then I pass out. And so what do you need to do if you're having a hypo? Um, I need to have something sugary like sometimes just a banana or Sometimes a, mostly a popper. 
For example, if you go for a run, your body is able to use stored energy to keep your blood sugar at a healthy level while you're exercising. For diabetics, their pancreas can't regulate their blood glucose level and they start to have a hypo. It's easily managed if you test yourself and you're below the right level, six, as you just heard a moment ago, or if you can recognise the symptoms like mood changes, shakiness or paleness. If you don't pick up these symptoms, it can get pretty serious. In the later stages of a hypo, you can begin to slow your speech, not be able to drink or swallow, and you can lose consciousness. Remember Harriet was six going on seven when she was diagnosed with diabetes. Diabetes is difficult to manage among kids as is, just because it's hard for them to know the symptoms of a hypo and self-manage insulin injections and needles. But the real worry for parents of diabetic children is what happens when they go to bed. Certainly in the early years, we would get up two or three times a night also to make sure she wasn't going too low in her sleep. So we would check her. If it was too low, we would have to wake her up and give her some juice or something sugary to try and bring it up a bit. If it was too high, we would often have to inject her while she was asleep with more insulin to try and bring it down to a safer level. So what the, your alarm would go off a couple of times a night to go into Harriet and check her levels? Yes, we would often set a phone alarm and if he got up once then he would reset it and we, and we knew we'd have to get up again, he would reset it and put it under my pillow and we would, we would do that. We have, not, have had nights where we've got up every two hours probably. He being Harriet's father and Fiona's husband, Ray. How did that make you and Ray feel? Uh, we've had some very, very anxious times. Uh, not so much now. We're a bit more confident with it all now. But in those early years, highly, highly anxious. And sleep deprived. Very sleep deprived <laughs> and very protective, very just frightened, I guess. And are you still testing Harriet's blood sugar at night? Yeah, what are we? We're four and a half, four years down the track now. And just last night, I know Ray set an alarm to get up and check her because he wasn't happy with her level at 10 o'clock when we checked it before we went to bed. Dead in bed syndrome is one of the major causes of death among type 1 diabetics under the age of 40. It's the sudden and unexpected death of a diabetic who otherwise appears healthy. Nobody quite knows what causes it, but nighttime hyperglycemia is one theory. I think. We're uncertain whether Harriet would wake herself up if she had a very bad hypo. And I guess at this stage still feel responsible for her if she's too high for the whole night, which is why we still do some nighttime checking. Uh, I think if we had, if we were confident that she would wake up before she got too low, we would feel more relieved. Or if there was some sort of way of us being alerted that she was going low, then we would not have to do nighttime checks. So, Harriet, do you currently wake up if you have a hypo? Um, well, normally if I, if I am too low, I can't fall asleep. But if I am asleep and I go low, normally I can't really wake up. I'm 
Ellen Leveter. And I'm Josh Nicholas. Today, it's a Think collaboration between Think Health and Think Digital Futures. We're going to be exploring a couple of different stories, all to do with how non-invasive medical technologies have the potential to change lives here in Australia. Before we go any further, you should probably know what non-invasive technology is. It's best described in relation to its binary, invasive technology. That's something that you have to have surgery for, like a pacemaker. Non-invasive is gentler on your body. It doesn't require surgery, and in some cases, you can even hide it under your clothes. To avoid waking up multiple times a night, Fiona and her partner Ray could use a type of invasive technology that would monitor Harriet's blood sugar. There is a compatible continuous glucose monitoring device. It's an invasive way of continuously monitoring her sugar, though, so she's not particularly keen, nor are we, on having more needles or cannula, whatever they're called, in on her skin and more tubing and more another pager-sized device for her to carry around. Other than that, the only one I've heard of is the dogs. People are training dogs, apparently, to pick up when people's sugars go low. And then the dogs come and alert mum and dad by licking them on the face. And yeah, I've heard of a couple of people who have had success with a dog, but we haven't really thought seriously about going down that path. So that's where Harriet and her family are right now. They have to be constantly vigilant, making sure her blood sugar never goes too high and certainly never goes too low. But there are also people working on just this problem. And I met a doctor she has a three-year-old boy at that time and she get up every night every two hours every day to check blood and uh, you know i thought there would be a, a better way and so that's why i went into uh, how to essentially measure blood glucose uh, without taking blood and continuously this is professor hung nguyen he's an assistant deputy vice chancellor at the university of technology sydney We took a walk around Professor Nguyen's workshop at UTS. Just imagine workbench after workbench, spilling with wires and electronic parts that do God knows what. And there are all sorts of mad inventions as well, like a robotic hospital bed that can follow you around. A wheelchair that is equipped with artificial intelligence. Right. And we've even featured him on Think Digital Futures before because he's made a robot that could play chess and tic-tac-toe. So when Professor Nguyen started thinking about how to address this problem, he started thinking about all the other kinds of devices that people use when they go to bed. When I start realise that the, the danger of hypo, uh, I seen a device that if you snore, it will shock you. <laughs> so I wore the, 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 the watch for a few nights and it's very painful. <laughs> but... So the snoring watch was a bust, but eventually he hit on something that many of us have used before, just not in this way. My technology uh, work on ECG, so we, uh, well, heart signals. So you have electrocardiogram, you know, ECG. When you go to the doctor and they measure your, your heart, you know, they have a few sensors and they look at your heart. Cardiologists look into that and that sort of thing. So we have a system to measure blood glucose by looking at ECG. 
And from the heart signal, you actually can decipher the information of how blood glucose works. Just so you can picture it, an electrocardiogram is where someone, usually a doctor or a nurse, will stick a bunch of electrodes to your chest. It measures the electrical activity as your heart beats. It's that green monitor that is at the side of your bed in a hospital. And normally doctors and nurses are looking at the line going across the screen, searching for a pattern. Are the spikes too high or too low? Is there too much space between them? What Professor Nguyen realised is that this electrical signal can tell us other things about what your body is doing or experiencing. And maybe it could help to diagnose blood sugar levels as well. What's happening is, when the blood glucose is going down low, right, when I go to a certain level, you start sweating. And it's actually, in, it's actually causing the heart to respond. And from there, we look very deep into that very quickly and we work out really, you know, when is hypo and so on. From this original idea, it took 15 years for Professor Nguyen to actually make it. It wasn't the mechanics that was hard. Judging by all the spare parts lying around his workshop, it probably wouldn't have taken him that long to knock something together. Rather, he spent that time gathering a bunch of data and training an algorithm to be able to read those patterns. And this is what he came up with. So this is the, the device. They put this one here directly on the, across the chest and it will communicate with that. Oh, so you put it on kind of like a, a, an old heart rate monitor around your chest, yeah. you strap around your chest? Definitely, definitely, something you, like you that. You just wear this at night? Yeah, you wear this at night and, uh, and it will tell you if your blood glucose is low and it will alert the parents or anybody for you to take take some sort of food. So what we're seeing here at the moment is a device that fits in the palm of your hand and measures your ECG. When your ECG levels change, the device alerts the parent's smartphone that the child needs to be woken up and given something to eat to get their blood sugar levels back to normal. Although it's still a work in progress due to funding. He isn't there yet. You can't yet buy any of these devices. But soon, someone like Harriet may be able to sleep just a little bit easier. This device that this professor at UTS has invented, where it just sits on your chest and it uses your um, ECG to test your blood sugar and it sends an alert to your smartphone if your blood sugar's low, so it's a non-invasive technology. If you had something like that, how do you think it would change your lives? Um, it would take enormous amounts of pressure off parents and I guess as Harriet takes on more and more control as she grows older, which she is, it would also take enormous pressure off her. It would be a dream come true for us. So well done, Professor. <laughs> Listening to Think Health Futures, a special collaboration between Think Health and Think Digital Futures. So the next story you're about to hear comes from producer Sam King. Sam, would you like to tell us a little bit about this story? Hey guys, yes, absolutely. I don't know, man. Like I started with this idea that 
exoskeletons are inherently cool you know what i mean like i just i kind of started with exoskeletons and tried <laughs> to go somewhere from there um but in doing that i, I kind of came across this cool little niche that that exoskeletons have made for themselves you know they're a new technology and like any new technology they're still kind of finding their place in the world and it's 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 finding these niches in places that I would never would have thought. And one of them is in medicine, um, which is when I came across the, the Exoflex, um, as you're going to hear with, with Peter Abdelfati, which is a, um, like a hand therapy device. Uh, so let's just go back a step. What exactly is okay, an exoskeleton? Sorry. Yeah, well, it's a wearable robot. That's the way that I've been describing it to people. So who, who's going to benefit most from this? Well, um, they have a variety of, of uses as far as I understand. And through doing this story, I kind of focused on the medical angle. Um, and uh, the one, one that I looked at was, it was a therapy device. So basically it allows people who have experienced paralysis in their hands to wear this like robotic glove that uh, provides tension as they move their hands and it'll help them build their muscles back up. Um, and there was another one I looked at that was for stroke patients to give them movement back in their arms. So um, th these, these machines focus on specific limbs, but I, eventually the idea is to have full body exoskeletons that can maybe help people that have had full paralysis. So is the idea that if they, these people don't have exoskeletons, then it's just like heaps and heaps of physiotherapy? Well, exactly, with expensive therapists. And with stuff like the Exoflex, all they need is the machine and then they can do it by themselves at home through like a, an easily programmable interface, a little tablet kind of thing that's hooked up to it. And you actually got to wear one of these exoskeletons. What was it like I, I wearing did, one? Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to, to try both of them on. I, I checked out the Exoflex first and it was... God, it was just—it was just really weird feeling. I think Peter in the story describes it as having someone else's hand sitting behind your own and like moving your hand, but it's more like having a a machine that knows what you're about to do before you do it because it, it reacts to the tiny muscle movements in your hand. It's, it's just incredible. It's really difficult to describe. You're about to hear just what it's like, Sam. Thanks very much. No problem at all. Thank you, guys. a quick calibration. So you just do a maximum extension. Okay. And I record it. Perfect. So now the machine knows my limits. Exactly. If you could see this now, you'd think I was being kitted out for some high-tech sci-fi spacewalk. I'm in this sleek white boardroom in a small tech startup in Pimble, and I'm in the process of having a robot strapped to my arm. I'll put him back somewhere. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, that's cool. I'm wearing a robotic exoskeleton which runs down my left forearm, curving over the top of each of my fingers. It's called the Exoflex. How so, do people usually react when they do this for the first time? Well, you know what, we haven't, we haven't shown a huge number of people yeah. this, this kind of what you're doing now. This, some of it is new um, behaviors that we've yeah. implemented, and some of it is a bit, to be honest, secretive. That's Peter Abolfati walking us through my new augmentation. And who better to introduce us to this futuristic power fist? After all, he invented it. Imagine it as a bunch of fingers behind your hand. Like if someone, if you're paralyzed or you can't, you're having difficulties moving your finger and a therapist comes from behind your, you know, on top of your hand and puts their hand over yours and gently pushes down. But then they'll have to like have suction caps and lift it up as well, you know, do the reverse. That's what this does. It goes behind your your fingers in the in the top, which called the dorsum of your fingers, and it's stuck to your fingers through these um, band aids that we've put on. 
I gotta say, it looks like something out of a Ridley Scott movie, but it's actually a tool for rehabilitation. Exoskeletons are bleeding out of science fiction and into our lives. Lacking spaceflight or giant aliens to defend ourselves from, the catalyst for this is medicine. But before we dive into that, I'm going to take a moment to visualize this thing for you. But it's kind of hard to describe, so try to bear with me. So start with a cast. It's made of blue plastic and strapped to your left forearm. It's identical to the kind of thing you'd wear if you sprained your wrist or something. Only it's covered in Velcro. Next, they attach the motors. They're these long, thin bricks that run along the arm from elbow to wrist. They're roughly the length of a ruler and about an inch thick. They're velcroed on, side by side, along the cast. Four motors for the fingers, one special motor for the thumb. Now here is where the magic happens. At the wrist end of each motor, three thin, flat, hyperflexible pieces of metal slide out over the back of the hand and curve all the way over each finger. These strips of metal are the same size and they're stacked on top of each other, only a few millimeters thick and about a centimeter wide. Take a look at your hand right now. That'll make this easier, trust me. Now imagine if each bone on each of your fingers had a magnet strapped to the top. All right, so what you're left with is a series of long, thin motors side by side on your forearm with a thin strip of metal curving over each finger. And there's plastic nodes connecting the metal to each bone. Now those metal strips slide over each other individually, pushing and pulling each bone in your finger based on the algorithm being fed to the motor. So it's completely customizable. One motor, one finger, three motors, three fingers. You get the idea. Today, I'm wearing two, one controlling my pointer and the other my index finger. With the power of maths, the exoskeleton knows exactly what you're about to do before you do it. The feeling of having a machine you're wearing push and pull your fingers for you is absolutely, utterly indescribable. So try moving your finger yourself to see how it reacts to you. That's what we're talking about when wow. we're saying about human-machine interface. Yeah. So that that's that's it's it's a very novel so, force sensing mechanism inside that can feel the forces from your finger and then move the motors accordingly. I'm not pulling this metal out. The motor just knows that yeah. I'm moving my finger and it's exactly. it's, 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 moving it's reacting to you. Right. So now, part of that could be for for this function that we just did, like to be able to quickly self-adjust for yeah. you. The other one could be that not only can it follow you with very little force, it could also follow you with some force. So it could actually assist you if it pushes more than you're actually moving. So you're moving forward and it moves forward, but at a, at a higher rate. So it actually assists you in closing your hand. And then the other way of using it would be the resistance form. You're moving and it's resisting your movement like a rubber band. And the difference the strength is, training. Yeah, exactly. And so in hand therapy departments, you'll see these things called outriggers, which are splints with rubber bands attached to fingertips so that they're doing exact same thing keeping your hand open but creating some resistance yeah. the problem with those systems is that with a rubber band just like in any other spring the more you pull the higher the force gets because the more you stretch the rubber band the, the greater that force becomes and that's actually the opposite of what you want you wanted to you wanted to release that force as you as you close your hand not 
increase that force. But you can't really achieve that with a rubber band. But this device can apply the same exact force throughout your movement. Imagine the potential of a thing like this. For people who've lost movement in their hands, for building the hand strength of stroke patients and those who suffer from muscular degeneration or partial paralysis, this machine could give them their hands back. In fact, these robots have such an enticing promise in medicine that this is how it happens. This is how exoskeletons finally make their way from science fiction into our world. Not through conflict or conquering the galaxy, but through medicine. Don't believe me? At Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, they have a pair of robotic legs teaching people to walk again. At the University of Technology, also in Sydney, they're designing an exoskeleton that wraps around the entire arm, from shoulder to wrist. One day, it could help people recover the use of their arms. I was lucky enough to try it out. So this is the industrial controller that comes with the arm. If we tell the robot to move to this position, it controls all of that. It okay. tells the joints how to move to get there. I'm with Dr. Mark Carmichael in the University of Technology, Sydney's robotics lab. He'll take it from here. So this is technically an exoskeleton. It's uh, mounted on this platform here. An operator would either sit or stand here with the shoulder roughly aligned with the shoulder of the robot. See, I thought an exoskeleton was something that you would wear, not necessarily. Not necessarily, yeah, no. okay. So you can have exoskeletons just designed for an individual limb, okay. maybe just for the wrist or for the elbow. It, 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 an entire body exoskeleton is, is it's challenging. And we are getting to that point where I, I actually just recently saw, so, um, I think someone like Honda or I, I can't remember who it sure, exactly, sure. they had a full body exoskeleton. It looked, it's like something out of the movie of Aliens. It was mm. really impressive. That's a personal influence for you, right? Aliens? Mm. Yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Growing up, I loved that movie, The Yellow Exoskeleton, mm. which fights with the, the queen. Yeah, amazing. Get away from her, you bitch! And that, that is a little bit why we've got this robot as yellow. Okay. To, really? Apart yeah, from yeah. its high vis and its kind of safety, nice and soft, yeah. it's um, nice and yellow. So, yeah. I see the resemblance. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same. While it's not exactly Ripley's power loader, this exoskeleton arm is remarkable in its own way. Think for a moment how complex your shoulder is. Move your arm around. Seriously, if you're not in a public place, twist it around just to see how huge its range of motion is. It's got this massive area of flexibility, but there are points of no return where the shoulder can't bend the arm any further. A robotic exoskeleton needs to be able to mimic that insane range without dislocating your shoulder. Dr. Carmichael's robot solves this problem using a series of five rotating disc joints. Yeah, so that's one of the big novelties of this design here. They're, they're a bit like layers of an onion in the sense that they, they wrap around themselves, they can fold in on itself, and, it can, and when it's operating, it has quite this hypnotic kind of behavior. At a minimum, you'll need three joints at the shoulder. We've looked at the idea of exploiting redundancy. So we have additional joints there that is quite beneficial for a few reasons. One, if you have just three joints in your exoskeleton, there's always going to be somewhere where when you are wearing the device, you can't move your arm. It's mm -hmm. limiting you in some way. Either the robot has to collide with itself or it'll collide with you, or the um, two of the joint axes become aligned and a phenomenon known as gimbal lock occurs. So 
all of these things limit where the robot can reach. And that means that there's the, the human shoulder has a massive range of motion. It, it, out of all of the articulations in the human body, it has the most. So trying to design a device that you wear, which can have the same range of motion, but without limiting you, it's quite challenging to, to kind of reconcile those two. If this sounds a little complicated, that's because it is. I mean, how do you sit down with a pen and paper and design an exoskeleton arm with five joints that all fold back on each other? Well, we got around that by not having to do it. What we did is we came up with the mathematical model that describes this mechanism. Then we fed this model into a computer program using genetic algorithms to actually tell us what are the best numbers to put into this design. Um, this is one of the designs that it spat out. We implemented it, works pretty well. And I mean, even if you have a computer do your designing for you, a massive amount of effort goes into solving the issues that come with building a robot around a human. But the point is, the potential of exoskeletons to help people heal is driving scientists like Mark to solve them. And there's another reason. It's, it, it's a bit of an obvious kind of, we'll start here. It's very much in demand, and it's only going to get worse and worse or more in demand with an aging population. So people are predicting that, you know, in 20 years, the number of aged is going to outweigh the number of, you know, people below 20 or something like that. And they're foreseeing that that's going to be a big problem because you're going to have all of these elderly people who need this care and no one to give it. So the idea is that we can use a robot to be the physical embodiment, you know, actually physically administer this rehabilitation and I'd still have people there sort of being kind of overseeing the rehabilitation that but they have more of a administrative kind of role so they kind of oversee it and kind of monitor the progress of these patients as they recover over time hopefully okay. recover yeah, over yeah. time and now that this groundwork is being laid who knows where exoskeletons could take us next we haven't seen anything like this ever yeah. after all these years so we, we think we're really onto something like can this be used in space to assist um, astronauts in, in opening and closing their hands in space where, I mean, one of the biggest troubles that NASA has is when they create the spacesuits, particularly with the fingers, they, they, they require dexterity. When you've got that vacuum outside of your spacesuit, it really seizes up the, 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 the gloves, so you can't really move your hand with facility. The potential for where it's going right now, it's really exciting. I can't even think about five or ten years ago seeing anything like this in the media. You know, there was no videos, no nothing apart from, you know, a bit of sci-fi stuff. Now it seems every few months there's a video about um, a new company has developed an exoskeleton that's allowing paraplegics to walk again. And the fact that that's happened within this small span of time, that's really exciting and it makes me wonder about where it's going next. Um, and to be at the front of that, it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Producer Sam King exploring the future of exoskeletons. This is Think Health Futures. I'm Josh Nicholas. I'm Ellen Leibeter. And our final story for today comes from the labs of the CSIRO in Canberra. Yeah, so Vibromat is an array of backworn vibration motors that can encode the, a visual scene um, based on a head-mounted camera. Look, if you thought exoskeletons were out there, then wait till you hear this. Uh, you'll have to listen closely because this story gets a bit technical. This is Nick Barnes. He's the project lead on Vibromat. And I'm also an associate professor at the Australian National University. Take a moment now to close your eyes. What's in front of you? 
What's behind you? How close is the nearest door? If you are lucky enough to be able to see, you can probably remember all the major objects in the room or the environment about you. But for someone who is blind, they have none of the information that you have. Now picture a back brace, worn around your stomach but covered by your shirt or dress. And on your head is a relatively small camera recording the environment around you. This is the Vibromat. Let's hear that description again. Back-worn vibration motors that can encode the, a visual scene um, based on a head-mounted camera. So that back brace you're wearing, it's taking information from the camera and sending little vibrations across your back to let you know if there's a door nearby or a table or whatever. So we have an array of 96 tactors on the back and that's being translated from some portion of, of the image and we're representing things spatially within that. So if they're looking in a particular direction and they move around, an obstacle will move across their back as they look at it from different angles. And so they can visualise around and then feel where the obstacle is and then navigate their way around it. But why vibrations? So if someone has an impaired sense, so in this case vision, what we do is substitute information through another sense. Now, touch is a really good sense in that way because you often aren't using it when you're kind of walking around and particularly touch on your back. If you're navigating through an environment or moving around, you're not using your touch receptors from your back. And vibration technology is a good way of encoding touch. And things like mobile phone motors mean that they're, they're cheap and they're very reliable. So it's like that old principle. When one sense doesn't work, the other senses compensate for it. Exactly. And with some tricky machine learning, Nick and his team are able to take images from the camera and transform them into vibrations. What we do is take an image and look at structures within that image and the way structures are appearing. We can also use machine learning to detect different objects within it and then emphasising things that are more important. So, for instance, we're finding obstacles within the environment. We're finding major um, junctions between walls and floors and emphasising those, making sure that those appear in what comes through to the user. That all happens rapidly. So this is stimulating at somewhere around 10 times a second. The images are being processed more quickly than that, so they're available for the person to see and so there's not a big lag so the person can walk at a comfortable pace. Nick has actually been working in this space for quite a while. He also works for Bionic Vision Australia on a bionic eye. The bionic eye involves surgically implanting a microchip onto the retina and can only be used for macular degeneration. So while Vibromat might be basic, it has the potential to benefit a wider range of people, as well as being a lot cheaper and non-invasive. The attraction of the Vibromat is twofold. One, it can suit any cause of blindness, so you're not restricted to diseases that have impacted on the retina. And the other one is that it's, it doesn't require surgery and is non-invasive. And sensory substitution isn't a new idea. According to Nick, we've been experimenting with it since the 1960s. So there were studies done by a person called Baki Rita from, um, I think, approximately the 1960s. The difficulty then was that the technology wasn't available in small sort of mobile, low-power devices. So the original prototype was embedded in a chair and using um, solenoids, so it required a lot of power and was not, not portable, obviously. With microchips getting smaller and smaller, 
the possibilities to make stuff like Vibramat are never better. The technology in computer vision, the ability to process scenes quickly and find key information is improving rapidly and I think this is one of the things that is, is going to be an enabler and that is going to be needed by people. Vibromat is still in trial mode. They're testing with people who aren't blind at the moment. They're hoping to test the tech with blind people early next year. And with Google Glass and Snapchat sunglasses all the rage, nobody would blink an eye if you were walking down the street with a wearable camera on your head. Thanks for listening to the show. You've been listening to a collaboration between Think Health and Think Digital Futures. If you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard today, head to 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. Or 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. If you're listening to this on Think Digital Futures, why not subscribe to Think Health? And if you're listening on Think Health, go check out Think Digital Futures. Both shows are produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. I'm Josh Nicholas. See you next time.